Well, summer is over and fall is now in full force. In many ways, it seems like uh, we put the DVD into the player. We, we started to watch the movie, got got bored, we, we pressed forward and and skipped through the titles. The slow intro. And, and here we are in the juicy middle where all of the tension and action is. Except we're the characters and we're the ones in the middle of it all. I mean, March... Seems like a lifetime ago, let alone July, and that's the last time uh, we, we, we broadcast. And the climax of the story, well, that's still upcoming. And, you know, you have COVID, protests, riots, hurricanes, fires, economic downturn, and all of the wearing of the masks. And if all of that wasn't enough for our own entertainment, well, now we have a presidential election looming on the horizon. I mean, we're, we're four weeks out, and the countdown has begun. But, except, of course, the countdown to what? All of the doubt, confusion, and rage have only seemed to escalate, because human nature tends to lean into drama. And, and, and the more there is, the more we feed on it. In fact, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal addresses the art of the meltdown among us. You have Elizabeth Bernstein, who wrote the article, and she comments, It's what happens after you've held it together for all these turbulent months through a pandemic and a quarantine, uh, working from home, homeschooling, civil unrest, and the most divisive public discourse in several lifetimes. And then something seemingly small happens, and suddenly you're screaming alone in your car or sobbing to your dog about it, about everything. Have you had your meltdown yet? And perhaps an even bigger one is on the way on the day after the election. But see, for me, this is where I begin to ask the question, is all of this worth my attention to the point of melting down and completely losing it? Is the worry and the, all the unwanted stress going to add more years to my life? Is it going to add more years to your life? And in fact, study after study shows us that how we respond in the middle of crisis what we allow to stress us and and, 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 and and to cause us to explode actually takes away years from our lifespan, especially if we allow it to penetrate and affect us chronically. It also doesn't help that social media throws a constant barrage of so-called experts and opinion specialists, and the emphasis on opinion, of course, telling us that if we're not wearing our masks— and if we're not out marching with the crowds in protest or voting for the right candidate, well, you'd better watch out. It's no longer an issue of free and individual conscience. It's now a moral duty to adhere to the popular consensus. Otherwise, you just aren't fit enough to belong to society at large. And this only fosters more fear in people who have a different opinion or or, or different belief. And it further shuts us down because we don't want to deal with it. We're not only forced into our homes because of the quarantine, we're now in a way virtually quarantined by fact checkers, abstract thought police that you and I can't see or hear, 
and whose fetish isn't really to get at the truth, but to shut out those who are seen by the new self-proclaimed virtue gods as the ignorant, poor, unfortunate souls that they are, and that need to taste the virtual justice exacted by the new sheriffs in town, or the new sheriffs online. (laughs) And so, I mean, we ask Orwellian much? Well, yeah. But but it's all for, and, and you know it, come on, you know that magic phrase, it's all for the common good. So hey, bring on the Orwellian society that at one point made our skin crawl. That was that, that that has now made the progressives who have always used hidden agendas as their method to further their ideology now break through the gates of reason and decency and into full-on revolution. And by the way, it's not some new and fresh revolution. It, it's, it's one that has already graced our world before and whose just and rosy images of decapitated bodies, blood running red on the streets, and songs of joyous revelry by the mob of liberation. Yeah, sounds peachy, doesn't it? And, and those, are, uh, uh, those are the classic bedtime stories that, you, that we want to tell our kids before we kiss them goodnight, bidding them to dream sweet dreams. And maybe that should have been Disney's next fairy tale screenplay since they're also so keen on making sure we're all well informed. All of all of this being said, we try to look for the silver lining. And I know that sounds cliche, but we really do. We really do. Where's the silver lining in the middle of all of this? Because that's at the core of our of our human spirit. To look beyond all our real circumstances, gloomy and grim as, as they may be, and try to grab on to some common sense, to, 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 to courage and hope. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but, but I've grown so tired of the senselessness. And this is where our pursuit of truth has to be even stronger. Because that's the real danger here. The loss of truth, the loss of the right, the loss of the good. Regardless of what's happening out there, we need to keep it together within our own selves, within our homes, within our families, and with faith in the good, and to keep it together in our own local communities. That is the work that we must keep on doing. And with that determination and understanding, we arm ourselves with compassion. Because without compassion, without the truth of God in our midst, there is nothing to hold us together. Absolutely nothing. The discussion in uh, various circles over the last few months has has been about the new normal. And it's pretty obvious that uh, there, there really is no return to the life before COVID. 
Besides the many lives that have been impacted by the illness in terms of loss, is also the breakdown of society in terms of the economy and, and our commerce. And you know what I find so incredibly ironic from so many in the mainstream media is the lack of perspective. There, 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 there's so much criticism about not adhering to restrictions and, 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 and all of the wearing masks and that this, is, this has somehow been the cause of the disease spreading. I mean, this is tantamount to being absolutely compassionateless, and yet the forgotten of society, the jobless, the homeless, those, those who have become more prone to depression and anxiety, uh, suicide, and all the businesses which have been closed nationwide, what about them? Where are their stories? And why, is, why are their stories not being put front and center equally with those who have suffered loss because of COVID. This cycle has become so vicious. And um, because we're in this constant state of political campaigning. And, 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 and because of this constant uh, campaigning being thrown at us, um, through our television sets, through social media, it becomes meaningless after a while, especially after everything we've been going through. And at least for me, there's no change with how and, and for whom I vote for. There, there really is no change. It doesn't matter what I do. And I know some of you feel the same way. I also know that there are plenty of arguments to be made to the contrary, and believe me, look, I completely understand. But but what are we to expect after November comes? Has the game changed so much that, that now the focus isn't who I vote for, but rather what I believe in, what you believe in? Because this is not a discussion about the campaign or, 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 or who you're voting for. We're not going to be spending a lot of time on that. I just simply mention it because it's part of our reality right now. I, 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 I talk about it and I mention it because in my own time of soul searching, I've, I've come to a point where it is completely exhausting. The fight isn't about it. it, it the fight isn't out there. It really isn't folks. That's what the mainstream media and the candidates want you to believe. But at what cost? Over my sanity, uh, over our well-being, our relationships, and our, and and ultimately our peace of mind. No, thank you. I'm not going to sacrifice those things in my life because of what uh, of what I of who I should be voting for. Now, hey. Let's have the courage to call evil by its rightful name, absolutely. And let's certainly stand up to defend the principles uh, that, that are sacred and that define the God-given rights that are ours, and not because of the virtue of government, but because of the inalienable truth of our being created. If we lose those, then it doesn't matter who's in office at any level of government. doesn't matter. So we have to make sure... That our souls, our, that our neighbors' souls are not rotten to the core. Because since our last show, it's been more than the pandemic. It's been civil unrest, riots, and, and the dismantling of our civic infrastructure, which includes, by the way, decency 
and honor. Fires that have ravaged almost the entire West Coast and that are still causing destruction. Storms that are leaving towns decimated and with no sign of stopping. So, of course, politicians want us to believe that they somehow have the power to stop all of that. And so do we believe them? The cry now on the streets is for revolution. But what type? What type of revolution? And that's an important question to ask. In the past 200 plus years, there have been two historic revolutions. The American and the French revolutions. And unfortunately, many of our esteemed scholars and academics have taken things like critical theory and liberation theology, uh, ideologies that have their roots in a type of fatalistic humanism, since the solutions that these theories offer are framed in liberation of groups and of collectives that are defined by cultural norms rather than the inherent value of each individual and the character each individual not only has, but ought to have. And this is where the idea of utopia fails, because it requires all of us to be judged not on our own merits, but on our past sins, and not not individual sins, but the sins of our group, the group that we belong to, the color of our skin, our ethnicity, the nation, and creed. A man, therefore, becomes the judge, jury, and executioner of man with no overarching principle to stand on. All of this, as I've described it, is exactly what led to the French Revolution. And here is where most academics will not agree, but in the end, have no choice but to concede. The difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution is that while the French crowned reason as king to liberate them, their revolution was untethered from the inalienable principles of the truth of our created existence while the American Revolution was anchored to these undeniable principles. And make no mistake, what many so-called progressives in power and on the streets through violent activism want is exactly what the French Revolution produced, utter chaos and the destruction of all power structures that they deem irrelevant. And if I or you happen to be against such a revolution, then by their own measure and judgment, the guillotine is what we deserve. But hey, this lovely picture has been labeled the summer of love. Yay! I wonder if the French of the night of the 1790s would happily agree. Perhaps. So in comes those who would save us all. And, and, and what they demand is nothing less than what they call the Great Reset. Oh, yeah, this is, this is true. Have, have you not heard of it? It's called, they've actually called it, The Great Reset. It sounds like a great title for a novel. But, but this, is at re, this is as real as it gets. This reset has been proposed by none other than the organization called the World Economic Forum. And if you don't know who these people are then you should become familiar with them right away. This is a global NGO that's been around since 1971. It was first known as the European Management Forum, and their stated main objective is for improving the state of the world. Quite nice. So you have private and public sectors meeting together, some 3,000 business and international political leaders, 
Um, you also have economic experts, journalists, and leaders of other NGOs that come together to discuss, well, the world. <laughs> and sure, the first and and you know the first question when reading through their stated goal is, what's wrong with that? Well, first and foremost, you have to ask the questions here. Question with boldness is that this is not a conglomerate that has been formed by the consent of the people. That's an important one. There's no democratic process in the way the organization makes decisions about world issues. These are the global and wealthy elite making decisions for you and for me. And they typically have not had a very good record of transparency, except that now they have unveiled their plans for this great reset. And this reset is a global one. And it's vast. Reading just the overview of the proposed plan gives you the impression that, hey, this is, this is a good thing. But when you begin to see the scope of this initiative, the obvious questions are, how do you implement it? Who's in charge? Who benefits? What is the final endgame? Now, the material that uh, you can go and find on their own website, weforum.org, and I'm going to be placing all of this uh, in our uh, podcast uh, show today, all of this information that you can go and read for yourself, because you can't just take my word for it. You've got to go and you've got to do your own digging. But just to read a few uh, uh, things from their uh, document here, which is entitled, Now is the Time for the Great Reset. So again, this is weforum.org. And again, this will all be um, on our um, information page. If you go to, to, our, to our website, which is uh, truthreal.transistor.fm. Again, that's truthreal.transistor.fm. And underneath today's show, you'll see all of the links uh, articles and uh, different information, videos that we're going to share today that you can watch on your own. And I encourage you to do that. So here in their um, title article, um, they say COVID-19 lockdowns may be gradually easing, but anxiety about the world's social and economic prospects is only intensifying. There is good reason to worry. A sharp economic downturn has already begun, and we could be facing the worst depression since the 1930s. But while this outcome is likely, it is not unavoidable. To achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions. Every country, from the United States to China, must participate and every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed in short we need a great reset of capitalism and there you have it and this is just the introduction to the whole document there's there's a lot more to read uh, I'll go on here and read just a bit more. Left unaddressed, these crises, obviously everything that he's outlined, together with COVID-19, will deepen and leave the world even less sustainable, less equal, and more fragile. Incremental measures and ad hoc fixes will not suffice to prevent this scenario. We must build entirely new foundations for our economic and social systems. And the question is, what are they? Because we're talking about a complete reset of capitalism. So into what 
What is more fair? What is more what is more equitable? What is going to stop all of this crisis? This isn't uh it sounds good and and sort of fairy tale like, but not really. Now let's hear uh some more from uh f- from their own lips about this great reset. Now is a historical moment, a time, not only to fight severe virus, but to shape the system. We have a unique but rapidly shrinking window of opportunity to learn lessons and reset ourselves on a more sustainable path. It is an opportunity we have never had before and may never have again. So we must use all the levers we have at our disposal, knowing that each and every one of us has a vital role to play. Now is the time to think what history would say about this crisis. And now is the time for all of us to define our own role. What is it that would make it so that history would look at this crisis as the great opportunity for reset? The Great Reset is a welcome recognition that this human tragedy must be a wake-up call. It is imperative that we reimagine, rebuild, redesign, reinvigorate and rebalance our world. Rebalancing investment, harnessing science and technology and advancing the transition to net zero emissions, all elements of the Great Reset are fundamental to building the future we need. The world's problems fit on three sides of a triangle. It's one versus many, man versus nature, and the unfortunate foundation is long-term versus short-term. We had already income inequality that was fueling income, race, gender inequality. We have a climate emergency, which we can't walk away from. There's no doubt that the very survival of the human race requires us to act. Any recovery stimulus should have green conditions attached to it. Energy prices should reflect real costs. You need private sector capital, private sector ingenuity, private sector technology, and private sector capabilities to come to the party. You need enormous trust between the private sector and the public sector for this to actually work. We have to change our economy dramatically in the next 20 or 30 years, and the next 10 years is absolutely decisive. The recovery has to be greener than any of the previous recoveries. And in order to do that, we need to ensure that the stimulus package, including fiscal and monetary, are much greater uh, than they were before. So we cannot waste this opportunity uh, to ensure that uh, the uh, very precious money that's raised from the next generation is spent on green and low carbon. We will now start a quite a high number of task forces to look at all the different issues and we will present all those ideas to the people assembled in Davos. But at the same time, we will make Davos very different, very open to ensure that we do not fall, uh, fall back to old recipes, but that we really look at forward-oriented solutions. Young entrepreneurs, especially for de- from developing countries that are there and can see the right problem, can really step up and create solutions. Finding profitable solutions to problems of the people and the planet, and we're starting to see firms move to that, and we're seeing firms that behave responsibly in that way actually doing better 
on conventional measures of profitability and doing better in this particular period. We've also seen social entrepreneurs step in in incredible ways. Not only has it exposed the precarious reality, but then it has also exposed the opportunity to recenter the reset around the most vulnerable and those on the edge where um, it only takes something like a pandemic or um, difficult circumstances to slide into poverty. And then we need to couple that with new initiatives to equip more people with the digital skills they'll need, not just to have a tech job, but a job that is increasingly tech enabled in almost every part of the economy. If we can empower consumers with all of this, I think we unleash this next generation to have a much broader impact more quickly. We can never again allow our health, education, care systems to be underfunded. We need our imagination here. Hospital is being redefined each and every day right now. So the next time someone tells us uh, that tackling climate change is either too costly or too difficult, I think we need to remind them and remind ourselves of what just is happening right now. We not only have to demand change, but also create change. We have to live up to the expectations which we have created, and we will do so. Okay, so a lot of sort of, um, you know, on the surface talk, you know, there there's not necessarily specifics given, a lot of the information and a lot of the videos that you'll see um, sort of, you know, speak in general terms. But but when you start to read a lot of their uh, other documents online, you'll see how vast uh, this is and that this is something that has been a long time coming in terms of planning. And um, I haven't seen a lot of reporting done on this in the mainstream media, uh, but hey, it's there. It's there for you for you to see, and they're not hiding it. Uh, there, there's something else I wanted to share with you. Um, this is the CEO. He's also the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. His name is Klaus Schwab. In a in an interview that was done uh, not too long ago uh, on CNBC, and he said a, a couple of interesting things I wanted to highlight. So uh, here's Klaus Schwab. I don't know how it will play out in uh, November, but what we know is that we will end up with many more unemployed and uh, particularly also people in the gray economy, which are not counted for, uh, who lose their jobs. So we will see definitively a lot of anger um, already now, but probably increase by the end of the year uh, because this crisis will be with us until we really have found a remedy. So um, we have to prepare for a more angry world and uh, how to prepare uh, it means to take the necessary action to create a fairer world um, to see that uh, we provide everybody with uh, decent access to the health system um, that we make sure that those people uh, who are really left behind uh, and I'm not speaking only on national levels I'm speaking also internationally if I see now uh, the tragedy in some of the emerging countries like South Africa like some countries in East Asia I think it's all 
I, I don't have too many remedies. The, the remedies have to be discussed through dialogue by the stakeholders of our global system. Okay, you get the picture. Uh, this video will also be uh, up on our website so you can see the whole thing. But one thing I wanted to focus on was we need to, is what he said. He said, we need to prepare for an angrier world. Now, that, that to me is not hopeful. Yeah, and you could say, well, he's just giving the obvious prognosis. And notice, uh, it, the, the very beginning of the video didn't show the question that was asked by the interviewer, but she was, she had, she was asking about the elections coming to the United States in November. So he's, he begins by talking about, well, we have to see what happens after November, but that his obvious prognosis for him is that we're, we have to prepare to live in an angrier world. And, so in comes the World Economic Forum and all of its leaders, and what do they have to offer? He obviously says, I don't have all the answers, I don't have all the remedies, but by talking with everyone from the international community, then we can possibly come up with some answers. But again, how do you do that, especially with the sovereignty of nations? Now, I wanted to take a look at uh, one of the uh, interesting social experiments that are that's already taking place, and you probably have read about this. It, there's no secret. There's a New York Times article about this. Uh, there, uh, this is one example of what the WEF, the World Economic Forum, in terms of uh, what, what type of plans are looking for that can help to fight against uh, COVID-19. Um, there's this new socially engineered system that they've already began to implement in China. So remember that the coronavirus has offered uh, the, the World Economic Forum a unique opportunity. That's how they put it. And that unique opportunity, while they may not say it so boldly, is control. Okay? So here we have something, a system that's called Alipay. At least that's how I think you pronounce it, Alipay which is the newest in technology and released as a means to help fight the coronavirus in China. Okay, so as I said, this is a New York Times article. Uh, it was published in March uh, of this year, March 1st, but it was updated just uh, recently, August 7th. Uh, in, uh, the, it's entitled, In Coronavirus Fight, China Gives Citizens a Color Code with Red Flags. So I'm just going to read portions of this, but I will put the, the, the link to the article on, on our uh, website, on our show page for today. And again, I, I encourage you to read it. This is all accessible uh, for, for your own research. As China encourages people to return to work despite the coronavirus outbreak, it has, be, it has begun a bold mass experiment in using data to regulate citizens' lives by requiring them to use software on their smartphones that dictates whether they should be quarantined or allowed into subways, malls, and other public spaces. But a New York Times analyst of the software's code found that the system does more than decide in real time whether someone poses a contagion risk. It also appears to share information with the police, setting a template for new forms of automated social control that could persist long after the epidemic subsides. So in other words, you know, here you have Alipay. Once COVID is gone, 
what happens? Do we keep Alipay? Now, this is what uh, uh, the the Alipay healthcare code does, uh, and this is according to uh, China's official news media. Uh, this is now reading from the New York Times article. It's it's called, uh, or the China has officially called uh, this uh, this system the Alipay health code. Uh, it was first introduced in the eastern city of Hangzhou, uh, a project by the local government with the help of Ant Financial, a sister company of the e-commerce giant Alibaba. Um, so people in China sign up through Ant's popular wallet app, Alipay, and are assigned a color code, green, yellow, or red, and that indicates their health status. The system is already in use in 200 cities and is being rolled out nationwide. This is in China. Uh, neither the company nor Chinese officials have explained in detail how the system classifies people. Uh, that has caused fear and bewilderment among those who are ordered to isolate themselves and have no idea why. So a lot of uh, how the app works is not necessarily uh, shared with the people of China. Uh, but this particular QR code, uh, what what it signifies is is if is if it's um. If uh, if you get a red QR code, you're not allowed to to shop. You're not allowed to 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 take public transportation. And basically, what it means is is that you can't work. You can't go to your job. You have to stay home. Uh, a, a yellow QR code basically says that uh, we, we that you can go in, but you have to be approved uh, by by certain officials who are who are you know helping to um, to keep track of. Of, of, of everybody in terms of their codes. And if you uh, have a green QR code, then you have a clean bin, bill of health and you can basically, uh, uh, it, it sort of enables um, e- each person to move about unrestricted. Uh, but again, the yellow code, you may be asked to stay home for about seven days. And again, the red means you've got to stay at home for you know for two weeks and and you can't travel anywhere you can't go out to shop you can't do anything so so this is the new social system that has uh, been introduced in China and and again uh, the the article of the New York Times uh, will be posted on our on our page so you can see it I'm not going to read the rest of it but I'll tell you just by reading that that's quite disturbing. And this is something that the, the that the WEF is talking about implementing, not just in 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 certain places like China, but these are testing sites to see how the people will accept it, how well it works, because they the plan is to later implement this around the world. Now, um, uh, the the WEF in partnership with Big Tech has also created something similar to this system, uh, and it's called Common Pass, and this is described as the world's first COVID passport. It works very similarly to this QR code system in China. Uh, I'll also be putting up information uh, onto that. I'm not going to go through all of that right now. But again, this system is called Common Pass. And basically what it is, is sort of a passport for people internationally for travel. And so it'll it'll generate a QR code based on uh, people who have gotten tested and whether they have been shown to have uh, tested positive positive or negative um, and and based on the QR code that is that has been uh, put out for each person it will basically allow the airlines to tell you you can or cannot travel you you, you can get on uh, the airplane you can't get on the airplane uh, it's already been in use in various parts in Europe but now they're wanting to put this internationally uh, 
So, I mean, what are we to expect here with the WEF? If this is just one example of the system that they want to implement now as what the New York Times has called a new social experiment for control. My conclusion is, hey, all hail the brave new world. We should know well uh, what is to come ahead of us based on the progression that history has recorded before us. While man has always sought uh, the, the betterment of society, and in, in most cases the progressive mind seems to always imagine a better uh, way of controlling all of its inhabitants. When we talk of the French Revolution, we have to be bold in our questioning. While, while the French Revolution was a failure to true liberty, it was in response to a long tyrannical rule of the Catholic Church through a history full of corruption, of war, of persecution, harsh executions, and oppression of entire groups and nations. The papal power of Rome became a religious extension of Rome's empirical rule before it. There really was no difference between both of these periods in history. The only thing the papacy did was clothe Roman rule in religious robes. The cruelty, um, all the corruption and moral decay that once plagued Rome continued under the order of bishops and cardinals and priests. Now, it's estimated that over 50 million were killed during the Middle Ages. The church became not... Uh, not a symbol of hope as if uh, as it was meant to be, but a symbol of despair and, and of slavery and darkness. Why? Why is that? Because, because of its lust for power and control. Simple. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or not. Remember that one of the greatest signs of true liberation is a literate and well-educated populace. Literacy in the Middle Ages was a privilege of the upper class and of the high-born. And besides that, the ability to read and, and, and to understand uh, the, the scriptures was little to none, because you either needed to read and understand Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. Because when you went to, for, 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 for service at church, everything was in Latin. Now, the Bible was not readily available back then, as it is to us today. This is something that's very well known in history. So the priests became the first and last point of authority in all of the towns and cities of Europe. Free thought and debate were not a part of society as they are today. Keep the masses uninformed, and you keep the people under your control. And they knew that. They knew what they were doing. So the revolution in France represents... 1,260 plus years of papal and ecclesiastical rule being toppled. There were other issues, but one of the main issues was the religious oppressive power. The church got what it deserved. Think about it. 
Now, in in the year 1798, Napoleon's general, Berthier, uh, marches into Rome. It takes Pope Pius VI captive and proclaims Rome to be a, to be a republic. This is at the height of the French Revolution. And remember, prior to this grand finale of sorts, because... Because historians uh, give the French Revolution based on the progression of events about a 10-year span between uh, 1789 and 1799. Uh, some historians may differ on, uh, on those years. But in 1798, you have this major event, and it's pretty major, because in, in capturing the Pope, you have now ended papal rule that had lasted about 1260 years. And remember, prior to this grand finale of sorts, France had already traded one oppressor for uh, for another, that of the state. You have what history labels the reign of terror in the mid-1790s, where a de facto government uh, takes matters into its own hands and without any rule of law, begins to arrest as many as 300,000, and that's what historians uh Estimate and between thirty thousand to forty thousand uh, are executed or or imprisoned or die in prison, and this is only. By the way, these numbers that I gave you the this three hundred thousand that that are arrested and captured, and then about forty thousand who are executed or imprisoned. That's only spanning one uh, about nine months to a year, seventeen ninety three to seventeen ninety four, and that period is what historians call the reign of terror. Now, much of the war that resulted from from the French Revolution uh, claimed the lives of about two hundred fifty thousand people. Now we're, we're talking about the civil war that you know that resulted f- from the revolution, and, and these numbers are a faint cry to the millions that were claimed by the church during the Dark Ages. And still, that was over a period of twelve hundred sixty years, the, the, about fifty million people. Compared to a short 10 years of, of, of terror, civil war, and chaos, and revolt, uh, no doubt one could say, well, this was a long time coming. But again, this revolution would not bring with it a true birth of freedom, but a rise in utter anarchy, a disregard for, for, for order, honor, and truth, not to mention the destruction of anything sacred. The principle of life and equality for all might have been intended, but one form of control was only traded for another. That's that's basically what happened. Now, uh, I encourage you to go back to 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 uh, episode twelve of 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 Truth Real uh, to to take a closer look at the tyranny of the papal power uh, and of the church in Europe uh, during um, the Middle Ages. We took a, a much closer look at that. So again, look back at episode twelve. Um, take a listen and do your own digging. You've got to do your own digging on this stuff. We cannot be like the people of old who put their trust in 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 the church hierarchy without question. But nor can we be swept away by the spirit of riot and rebellion, which also oppresses. I refuse to be party to either of these. Now, one can stand to defend what is true, but with decency and in the spirit of love and liberty, but never at the expense of what is right and what is true and what is holy. The unprincipled will act against those who they say are oppressive in power, but will only offer the same oppression in return. Nothing changes. 
Look, at the end of the day, you can't defeat evil with evil. It is, it's impossible, and history shows us this. So, now we come to, to our time. Will history repeat itself? So far, it seems to be doing just that. This Great Reset is a representation of one form of control being traded for another. Nothing really changes. And, and, and here we have a very interesting set of global figures of, of different power circles calling for the same thing. They're calling for the common good. Be aware of this phrase. This phrase is used by every one of these leaders who are involved in this Great Reset. The common good. And here we've already discussed the World Economic Forum, what they represent, what they represent politically and commercially, economically, in terms of the interest they have for the world. But the question I have now is, what about the religious? What of the religious facet? Because there are a great many religious in the world who also are interested in the common good. So, enter a familiar figure of history the Roman Catholic Church. Everybody knows Pope Francis, and he's become quite the global figure since his installation, so much so that some have even compared his reign to the much-beloved Pope John Paul II. The most incredible thing here is that a lot of people either naively ignore or just dismiss Pope Francis because of the global positioning that Francis is taking, especially on this matter of the common good. So let me ask, how many of you out there have taken the time to read the Pope's encyclicals? These encyclicals are more than treatises that are meant for the church. These treatises are an intentional, very eloquent set of policy initiatives that affect the entire world from political, financial, social, and technological, and even commercial issues. And all they're all wrapped around the moral call towards a common good. His, his last encyclical, uh, entitled Laudato Si, was a call for reform for the planet in terms of climate change and a clear endorsement of Green New Deal policies. He has been lauded by politicians and activists as a leader in this new post-pandemic world order, and that's what they call it, this Great Reset. Now, what does that mean for you and for me? What does that mean for our individual rights based on the principles of our liberty? So here I'm going to give you quite a bit of information in terms of what the Pope himself has said or what has been said about him uh, from different uh, various world uh, leaders. And again, these, uh, these links will be available to you that you can uh, see for yourself and hear for yourself. So this, um, this particular quote I want to share with you comes from the Vatican Radio, uh, which is entitled, Pope Francis, Religion Should Not Be Confined to Personal Conscience. Yeah, those, that, that, that comes from Pope Francis. The orderly development of a civil pluralistic society requires, this is him now, this is him speaking again, the orderly development of a, of a civil pluralistic society requires that the authentic spirit of religion not be confined to personal conscience, but that its significant role in the construction of society is recognized. And this he said in remarks to the Italian president. 
in reference to property rights and religious liberty. Now, this is uh, in uh, from AmericaMagazine.org. Uh, this is uh, uh, the 7th of August of 2020. The Pope said, While I respect the Commission's goal of considering the United States in the context of substantive philosophical commitments, the understanding of these two rights, again, property rights and religious liberty, the understanding of these two rights, as presented in the report, is not consistent with the wisdom of Catholic of, of, of the wisdom of Catholic teaching on how a society can pursue the common good. So basically, the way in which we believe that we all have the freedom to own, right? That that that, that we have freedom to, to to own property and to have our own conscience in terms of religious beliefs, that these two things uh, don't uh, don't relate well on a society in terms of the pursuit of the common good. Really? Okay. Now, continuing on this very subject, on property rights and religious liberty, this, uh, again from America's uh, Magazine, this is continuing on now. This makes it even more important to remember that Catholic teaching says the right to religious liberty is not of itself an unlimited right. <laughs> this is incredible stuff. Moving forward, the just limits of the exercise of religious freedom must be determined in each social situation with political prudence. What does what do politics and religion have to do in terms of one determining the other? We believe in the separation of church and state. It goes on to say, according to the requirements of the common good, again, this is all being put into this framework of, of the common good, and ratified by the civil authority through legal norms consistent with the objective moral order. So, he doesn't say it. In bold, uh, certain terms, right? He, he clothes it with this lovely, eloquent language. But basically, the common good doesn't provide for our liberty of conscience when it comes to religion. It has to be determined by what? By civil authority, through legal norms, consistent with the objective and moral order, which is the common good. Moving on to uh, another Wonderful gem of wisdom. Again, this is now what Catholic social teaching says about property rights and religious liberty. Uh, this is the same article, America Magazine. First, this is now uh, from the article. First, Catholic social teaching does advocate the protection of property rights. How nice. But only when strongly situated within what is called the universal destination of goods. That is, quote, Christian, to Christian, Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as absolute and, and untouchable, unquote. That is the most incredible statement I've ever read. Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property? Yeah, maybe in the Dark Ages. But seriously? The Ten Commandments? Thou shalt, thou shalt not steal? Thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's, uh, that right there already tells you that private property is pretty much absolute. Moving on. On the contrary, it has always understood this right within the broader context of the, of the right common to all to use the goods of the whole of creation. The right to private property is subordinated to the right to common 
use to the fact that goods are meant for everyone. That's beautiful. So what does that mean in terms of this new post-pandemic great reset? That if I have too much, according to the leaders, whoever this conglomerate is, that then I must share with someone else or perhaps even be forced to give part of what I own because someone else doesn't have as much as I do? That it, that's not based in Christian belief. Now, moving forward to 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 something else, but related to the Catholic Church. Again, these are just things I'm giving you to realize what's on the horizon here in the not-too-far-away future. It's coming. This new Great Reset brings with it a complete and utter reorganization of what we know to be normal and true. And all without our consent. Sorry. But that's just not acceptable. Now, here's something interesting in terms of the beliefs of church and state, whether they should be separate or together. Now, this comes from Attorney General Barr, who was a Catholic, and he had this to say recently. Uh, This was uh, dated uh, Wednesday, September 23rd. Okay, Barr said today that, quote, no concept is more misunderstood than the notion of separation of church and state. Okay. Moving on, quote, yet Americans must know that, and this is Barno, that separation of church and state does not mean and never did mean separation of religion and civics. Now, there's some truth to this, but it gets it gets a little muddled here. Moving on, he said the Catholic Church teaches that there is a distinction between church and state, but not a total separation. And here's where I disagree. He calls on a history, Pope Pius uh, IX, called it an error in his 1864 encyclical of errors to hold that the church ought to be separated from the state and the state from the church. He calls that error. They shouldn't be separate. Dr. Taylor Marshall explained in a 2015 video that properly understood there is a quote distinction between church and state where each governs according to its particular competence but not a strict separation where one has nothing to do with the other the catholic position has always been what pope uh, galatius described in the late fifth century as the doctrine of the two swords so basically church and state are not to be separate they're to be together. I don't agree. And neither should you. Not because I said so, but because it violates one of the greatest principles that we have in this country, that politics cannot govern the church, nor can the church govern politics. They have to remain separate. This is what happened during the Middle Ages. The church dictated politics. Religion News Service. This is September 8, 2020. Pope Francis launches his post-COVID agenda with announcement of new encyclical. Now, he has since released a new encyclical. The first uh, that I mentioned, Laudato Si, uh, was released a few years ago. But now he has uh, um, brought uh, brought out a new one called Brothers All. Now, in this article, 
It says, with the announcement of a new document coming this fall, Pope Francis is launching his agenda for a world after the pandemic, one in which nations and individuals will rethink economic models and create more just systems. The title of the encyclical is Brothers All, and it's inspired by the words of St. Francis of Assisi. The Pope will sign this uh, his third encyclical at the tomb of St. Francis in Assisi on October 3rd. So this just happened a few days ago, uh, and so on and so forth. He proposed a plan to resurrect after coronavirus lockdowns, a plan that is anchored on the global interconnectedness that becomes so apparent af- uh, that has become so apparent during the pandemic. And in another speech on, on September 1st, Pope Francis addressed faithful on the World Day of Prayer for the care of creation, stating that the pandemic has brought us to a crossroads. So, he says that we need a new economic model or new economic models or to rethink them to create more just systems. So, this is now talking about the post-pandemic world. So this is not just world economic form. This is not just political. This is not just economical. This is also religious. And every one of these facets of our society are looking to join together for the common good. So basically, all these things I just read to you, that takes care of the Bill of Rights. Because if it has to do with the common good, then our individuality doesn't matter. Our right to free exercise of religion and to own property, to bear arms, to free assembly, all of that, gone, reimagined, of course. They don't say that they're going to eliminate that. They're just going to reimagine it. Yeah, that sounds so nice. Remember that when the state and the church join arms together, history has shown us the consequences of such a joining of powers. The restriction of human right and liberty, that's the, that's the consequence and it's right it is and it's right there for you to see now one element that is beyond just a curiosity uh if you if you dig deeper is francis call to sunday as a means to unite humanity and by the way this is not just uh the pope and the roman catholic church this is very beyond curious again using sunday calling sunday as a means to unite humanity and and in his previous encyclical laudato si he says this sunday like the jewish sabbath is meant to be a day which heals our relationships with god with ourselves with others and with the world don't disagree obviously that's what the sabbath is for Sunday protects human action from becoming empty activism. Sunday also prevents that unfettered greed and sense of isolation, which makes us seek personal gain to the detriment of all else. The law of weekly rest forbade work on the seventh day. Now, this is interesting because here he is talking about what the Bible says about the Sabbath, and he he refers to it as the seventh day because that's what Exodus 20 tells us, that the Sabbath is the seventh day. And yet here he is talking about Sunday. That's a side point, one for you to figure out. If the Bible says the seventh day, then why is he calling for Sunday? Anyway, 
That's just a side note. Moving on. Rest opens our eyes to the larger picture and gives us renewed sensitivity to the rights of others. And so the day of rest, centered on the Eucharist, sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us to greater concern for nature and the poor. Well, there's a lot of uh, conceptual things here that I would agree with. Sabbath is a time for healing. It's, it, it, it allows us to, to rest, and, 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 and it's actually a right given to us by our Creator that we don't have to be used, right, or, or abused by working every single day of the week and have no time to, to be with family and to, to have rest. But the issue comes here. Should that be legislated on a political governmental level? Because this is a religious law. So, if we go back into history, we find that when Roman power uh, uh, becomes a combination of ecclesiastical and civic power, okay, this is when now the Pope is given uh, basically the power of Caesar. There is a move made by Justinian, okay, who basically took back Rome from um, uh, from the Ostrogoths to help cement Christianity as the official religion of Rome. Okay, so if we go back into history, the, uh, in, in the year 321, um, Constantine made this decree that the day of the sun would be a day of rest, the day of the sun being Sunday. Okay, in the early part of the fourth century, the Emperor Constantine issued a decree making Sunday a public festival throughout the Roman Empire. He was urged to do this by the bishops of the church, who, inspired by ambition and thirst for power, perceived that if the same day was observed by both Christians and heathen, it would promote the nominal acceptance of Christianity by pagans and thus advance the power and glory of the church. So, Sunday, okay, uh, back then, all right, in history, is legislated by law, and all must keep it. Now, fast forward to today, September 21, 2020. This came out in what uh, in, in the um, uh, online newspaper Croatia Week. Croatia he- heading towards work-free Sunday. Great. But how? How is it heading towards a, work- a work-free Sunday? Okay, so the article says, Croatia is heading towards a work-free Sunday in the direction of half of EU countries where Sunday, uh, where Sunday working in shops is restricted. Now, when you restrict, that's done legislatively. So it's by law. And by the way, again, the interesting thing here is, and, I've got, and, and this is something you've got to do more research on because it's not just about Croatia. It's now saying that it's half of the EU countries where Sunday working in shops is restricted. Uh, later on in the article, it says regulating and restricting Sunday working is also in line with the directive of work-life balance adopted by the European Parliament last year, which has to be incorporated into the national legislation of EU countries by 2022. So now, wait a minute. Is what happened before in history slated to be repeated again in our world? And again, the question is, is it morally and ethically right to legislate this and then restrict one from having the choice of working on Sunday if one wishes to? Many businesses here in the United States are open on Sundays, and uh, there is a time 
or there was a time where there were Sunday blue laws in various states in this country where you couldn't go work on Sunday. Is that ethically correct? Is that the religious power infringing its 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 authority on 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 civic society? And is that what we believe? Is that a universal? Is that a is that a principle based on uh, our 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 liberty as human beings? So is history repeating itself here? Now, interestingly enough, moving beyond just religious power. What about what's happening with climate change? Because a lot of this has to do with climate change, has to do with, with, with what's happening in our environment. So, now we come with the idea of green Sabbaths. Now, what is a green Sabbath? Well, it comes from the Green Sabbath Project. Yeah, this is real. Uh, June 4th, 2020, a universal day of rest. A universal day of rest, a weekly eco-Sabbath, an ancient spiritual uh, technology repurposed for collective ecological survival. Sabbath properly practiced, as Greta Thunberg reminds us, we already know what the solutions are for the environmental crisis. Green Sabbaths will constitute both a model and a foretaste of the ecologically sane world to come. Now, wait a minute. Hold on a second. So it's not just religious power, but now political power from, from civic society, taking the idea of Sabbath and saying this has to be something that we practice and legislate. Now, the Green Sabbath Project goes on to say, take a weekly day of rest, make it a real Sabbath for you, for Earth. Don't drive, don't shop, don't build. Increasing numbers of people see the wisdom of observing a technology Shabbat, a break from all devices with screens. For instance, in Bogota, Colombia, uh, it's been uh, a car-free Sunday has been introduced that the po- that the population savers. It says, when Israeli cities shut down for the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, nitrogen oxide pollution in the air decreases for the day by seventy to ninety-nine percent. So, what does that mean? That if it benefits the environment, then we should legislate it, right? Is this the post-pandemic order that we're looking at? Legislating religious law. In an article in the New Boston Post on April 1st of 2020, the author said this, Let's give serious thought to reinstating at least some of the time-honored Sunday closure laws, sort of a one-day-per-week modified stay-at-home request. Such action would rededicate our society to a regular day of rest, family meals, civic associations, and religious observance. But again, as wonderful as that is, I mean, I myself... And my family, we keep the Sabbath. We keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. But should I force that on you? Should I then say because it benefits me and my family that I should have uh, the state legislature or the federal government legislate this? And even greater, now that the Pope is calling for it, and other organizations are calling for this to be legislated because it benefits the world. What is on the horizon for all of us? 
Have we stopped to ask why 2020 has brought with it such a harsh consecutive progression of events that have effectively shifted the entire world to the point of envisioning such a great reset that would completely erase not our problems, not our divisions or the trouble we see all around us, though that's what they claim, but would completely reshape the order of things to the point that we no longer recognize who we are and that our principles of truth and liberty are halted reimagined, rewritten, all in the name of the common good. What does that world look like? Some might argue that we have come so far technologically that there is no way on earth that the atrocities of the past, such as the French Revolution or the Dark Ages, would ever be repeated. We'll do it better this time. Yeah, that's what they always say. With all due respect, these are usually the famous last words of every society that has endeavored to reset the globe in the name of the common good. The principle of truth that unites us all is that we are all created equal. We are the intentional consequence of a loving and dynamic creator who hasn't abandoned us, but has given us a way out of all of this mess. So why not end it all now? What You know, it, it's a good question. Why can't God end it all now? Because the very directive and final endgame of God is a new beginning, but he wants as many of us to be ready for that new beginning. Not one where death and illness, chaos and flawed human institutions sever us from an order of life to one of uh, uh, more control and utter disorder. No, no, no. But one where we are all renewed, restored, and reborn. That means allowing us all to see the alternative solutions that are being given us and even forced on us by the power structures of our time so we can compare the difference of the world the Creator promises us to the world man is offering us now. I'm sorry, but if this great reset is our only hope and requires my and your forced compliance at the expense of my God-given liberty? Not in a million years. I will not comply. The fight is no longer about our vote. It's no longer a part. It's no longer about our about our party affiliation, and it's it's not even about our country anymore. And yes. I treasure the country that was founded on undeniable and timeless principles of our nature and our origins and our freedom. But if our leaders, whether whether they're on the right or the left, independent, Republican, whatever, doesn't matter. If they don't stand against against such systems of tyranny and control, then it really doesn't matter to me what party you belong to. The fight has to do with our very soul, who I am and who you are, and in what we believe in. So the question has to be asked, what is it that you believe in? Do you believe this great reset that I've shared with you today is going to save us all? Save humankind? Because it doesn't sound good to me. Because it's not based, it's not anchored in principles of liberty, of our being created. If you take away the inalienable principles of our being created equal and having the right 
to live free, to pursue life, liberty, and happiness based on our own beliefs, not on one, not on uh, on what someone else says must be adhered to. If we if 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 we don't believe in those things, then there is no future. There is no future for this country or for the world. Plus, who has who has promised us from any of these powers that be that loss and death and anger and and evil will end? No one promises the end of evil. Oh yes, we, we are all for the common good, they say. But at the expense of individual liberty? No way. You take that you take that away, and the world will be plunged into a darkness that won't see the end of it it, it, it. it will never see an end, and that is why the Creator, the one who gave us our liberties to freedom and liberty, must step in. So take these words for instance. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom will be against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and various places, famines, and deadly and devastating plagues and epidemics. You'll be betrayed and handed over, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And on the earth, you'll see distress and anger among the nations, People in utter fear at the roaring and tossing of the sea and the waves. People fainting from fear uh, with the expectation of the dreadful things that are coming on the world. But when you see all these things begin to happen, stand up and look up because your salvation is near. So, I ask a question. Do we dare believe? This has nothing to do with religion, church, or dogma. So don't come at me with, oh, here's a religious nut. No, 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 no. This has been, if this is your first time listening, go back. Go back and listen to the episodes because these episodes are all interconnected. We're on a journey here to figure out what is it that's going to save us all? What is truth? This is a question that is asked, that has been asked throughout history. Is it unreasonable for us, for, for us to ask questions? That's what this is based on. Question with boldness, even the very existence of God. For if there be a God, he would rather us what? He would rather have honest questioning than blindfolded fear. So do we dare believe? Because it comes down to this. We either believe in this great reset that does nothing to end anything except our liberty, or we have the courage to believe in the Creator who created us all equal and intends to save us from all of this. It's time. It's time. You can choose to listen or not. You can choose to believe it or not. And that's the beauty of it. You have the freedom to choose. No one can force you. I can't force you. And nor and, 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 and nor do I advocate for you to take everything I'm saying as completely without uh, any questioning. You have got to do your own digging. You've got to go out there and research it for yourself. 
We can either choose to believe it or not. We can choose to hope or not. Dare today to believe. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Truth Reel. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can do it where all podcasts are available. Also visit us at our website, truthreel.transistor.fm. Again, that's truthreel.transistor.fm. And if you're interested in donating to the cause of the refugees, please go to liveforone.com. That's liveforone.com. Join us as we continue to help our brothers and sisters, especially during this crisis under the COVID-19 pandemic.